The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you that we can say with such hope and certainty that, well, we can't do it, not I, but you can and you're in us through, through Christ in me. I thank you for that hope that we are a people who you are pleased to own, pleased to use, pleased to commune with, pleased to work with, pleased to teach now. Will you draw near to us and open up your scriptures and show us truth, reveal to us what we need to see this morning, build us up, use us then, that your kingdom would expand, that your name would be known, and that your people would be blessed for our good and for your glory. I pray this. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Have you ever seen a television commercial advertising a new truck that said, Last year's model got 25 miles to the gallon. This year we got 22. And we were first in class in towing, but now we're fifth. And we had to drop the heated seats that were kind of pricey. There's a little bit of a problem with the transmission that we haven't quite figured out. It's puzzling. It doesn't usually happen, but it's under warranty anyway, so if it happens to you, you're going to be fine. The all-new 2023 model. Get yourself one today. You've never heard that ad. Never. Though it might be appropriate in some contexts. You've never heard that because ads always talk about what's appealing, not problematic. A lot of people in this room work in sales, so let me be clear. Sales can be good. Sales can be one of those every good endeavors that God gives people. It can be good and it can be ethical, it can be helpful, it can connect people with products. Amen. We all know that for sure. And we also know that sometimes sales and marketing is just some way to hide the truth that's going to turn off any potential buyer who actually sees the truth. Sometimes Sales is about deception. And that's what brings us to the middle of the book of Jude this morning, where we find a biblical version of truth in advertising. As you'll recall, this short book of Jude, it's, really, it's only one page long, and it would be best to do it all in like a real short time frame so you'd remember it all together. We spread out over several weeks, though, and as you recall, this short book is about the challenge that arises from inside of the broader Christian community, not, not one that's especially out there in the world, though of course it is. This is inside the Christian community and maybe even inside of a particular church. The temptation offered to these folks here that Jude was writing to and on through the ages to all Christians. The temptation offered... It, set out and before them as a lure, an invitation to set aside the old faith that was once and for all delivered to us by Jesus and by his apostles, and instead put in its place a new and improved faith. Something that, that leads us into progress, that advances us, 
fits better with, with who we are and what our modern world is like, something that's new and improved. In Jude's situation and, and in every church since, there's always false teachers or false teaching that, that comes in and invites us to, to turn aside. They look good on the outside. They certainly affirm much basic doctrine, but this is the, the basic accusation of verse 4. In the end, they are ungodly men, these false teachers. They seem good. They, they seem to be about the Lord, but then in fact, they are ungodly. They claim basic doctrine, but they also claim that they and we all should be authorities unto ourselves to do what seems right in our own eyes, not Jesus, me. And in particular, that the grace of God is a license for sin of all sorts, especially sensual, sexual sin. God has given grace so that I can do what feels good and, and really satisfies me and is appealing to me. It's okay. That's what they were teaching inside the church and trying to get others to follow them. And this morning we're going to pick up in the middle of Jude as Jude continues his attack on those false teachers and this new and improved faith. Start in verse 11. I'm going to read through verse 16 and then draw two observations from it. This is verse 11. Jude writes about these teachers. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. We'll pause there. The, the heart of the heat in Jude. As we mentioned before, Jude has a lot of heat in it, and this is the, this is the heart of it. We're going to look at it and draw two observations. Here's the first. The new and improved faith offers a lot that seems appealing, but it delivers nothing good. The new and improved faith offers a lot that seems appealing, but it delivers nothing good. Remember, when I say new and improved, I'm going to use that phrasing throughout. I'm referring especially to verse 4, as I already described it, this, this idea that you set aside the authority of the Lord Jesus and become an authority unto yourself and use God's grace to justify all kinds of sin, especially sensual sin. 
But that would apply to anything. The new and improved faith, that phrasing would apply to anything that says the old faith once given to us is passe. I've got a better idea. That promises us a lot. That, that kind of a faith promises a lot, but it delivers nothing. Verse 11, begin, verse 11 begins, woe to them, which is a pronouncement of a future condemnation. We'll say more about that later. But for now, just notice this as we see this again, as we've said. There's a lot of heat here, but it's a heat that's not directed at us exactly. Unless, of course, you're following them. It's directed at the false teachers, and it's trying to show us who they are, and in this case, reveal their sales tactics to us so that we don't follow them. It's talking about them ones right next to us, around us, as a warning and as a, as a kind of an insight. So he gives us another set of three here, three Old Testament situations, each presented to us as if the false guides, and perhaps us, are, are right there in the middle of the situation. So follow this. They are right there with Cain, walking with him on his path. This is from Genesis chapter 4. Cain rejected God and then killed the true believer in the family and then kept right on going. And Jewish history regarded Cain then as the prototype of proud rebellion and discord and apostasy, that is, turning away from the true faith. He was the first guy who did that. A model of sorts. His pride tore apart the first family of God. That's these guys too, these false teachers. And they're also like Balaam. During the period of the Exodus, Balaam was hired by a foreign king to cast a curse upon the people of Israel as they were journeying towards the promised land of rest. And at first, Balaam refused. And you might read that and think he's a pretty decent guy and he respects God actually, but keep reading. Numbers 31, verse 16, we find out the rest of the story. Maybe you know it. Balaam changed his mind because there was money in it. And he said, because there's money in it, here's what you do. Use sex as a lure. It works every time. It'll work this time too. Why sex? Why sensuality? We talked about this before, discussing this in the previous passage. But sex and, and all kinds of sensual things are, are designed by God to deeply resonate with us. They, they grip us in a physical way and an emotional way and, and a mental way. They, they grip us in a, in a way that is very unique. Sexual, sensual things grip us by God's design because God designed that as, as a pointer towards a another type of deeply gripping physical and emotional and, and mental relationship. Ultimately, the marriage of Christ and his people. He's trying to show us something, and he, and he can't just like tell us it's really big. He wants to show it to us in, the, in our beings. So we are very drawn to sensual things. It gets our attention Sex and other sensual things and relationship and intimacy goes along with it. It gets our attention. And Balaam says to this other king, it'll get their attention. It'll work. Here's what you do. You get some women to seduce the men of Israel, and they will be seduced. They will come after them, and what that'll lead them to do is they'll modify their faith. They won't completely throw away God, but they'll modify their faith so that they can have him and this other new religion that these women are going to give him to. It'll work. Trust me. 
and it worked. That was Balaam's error, his false message, and these guys are right there with him, seeking their own prophet, just like Balaam. And they're also like Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, God's appointed leaders. This is Numbers chapter 16, if you want to read the whole story. Why should Moses and Aaron be in charge? Why should they always get to tell us what's right and wrong? Why should they get to tell me what to do? I've got some ideas too. Me and my friends, we, we have some perspectives. We, we know what we want. We should be able to say that too. We should be able to lead too. And God consumed them with fire and opened up the very ground and swallowed them. They perished. And so too did all these false teachers with them, says Jude. Now, of course, obviously they did not literally perish with Korah. There's a long time between these two, two points in history. But he's, he's presenting it as if we were right there because, again, his point he's trying to make is that we've been down this path before. We've been right there. This is, this is not something new. Those who deny the Lord and his reign, those who are ungodly, it always ends the same. They have a better idea, a, a new and improved version of the faith, and they argue for it, and they offer it up, and they promise so much gain from it. It'll be so much better for you, and, and for me, in fact. It'll be, it'll be a, a great way to go. And God always says, absolutely no. And the judgment comes. Beware. Verse 12, beware because these people are among you. They're not just out there in the world, safely on the other side of the hill, that you hear about them. They are among you. They are right in our midst at the love feast with you, which is the phrase meaning communion. They celebrated communion a little differently than we do. They celebrated it as a, as a whole full meal. So he's trying to say they're right there with you, dipping your hand into the very same cup with you as Cain and Balaam and Korah. That's who these folks are. A blemish, or really a reef. Footnote may say that the word is actually reef. The words are very close, but... Reef's hard to understand, but it's actually a reef, something that you would run a ship into, crash, shipwreck, and perish. There's a danger there in your midst. Watch out. And also notice, notice, it's all just so much empty talk. Jude's saying that too. Pay attention. Read the fine print. Look again at what Cain offers to you. Cain's version of faith may sound appealing. Pride and strength and I get to chart my own path and I get to worship what I want and the way I want, how I want. And Balaam offers something that feels really good. Have your cake and eat it too. It's, just, it's so nice and very, very appealing. And Korah offers you a faith that is stand up for yourself, man. Have, have some pride in yourself. You, you know things too. They're not the boss of you. You be the boss of you. 
all, put that all together. Maybe one of them appeals to you more than the other, but put them, put them all together and you got this a picture of self-confident and assertive and independent and self-affirming and doing what seems right in your own mind and what really feels resonates with you deeply. Man, it looks good. Like a bank of heavy clouds approaching a parched land, promising rain, finally. So appealing. And they're just laying it all out there and saying, open yourself up to this and receive it all. And all that old, dry faith from the past. It's so old and dry. It's so yesterday. Take this. Drink this. Fill yourself with this fruit. Use this water to quench your thirst. You'll be satisfied finally. But like so many spin doctors, they've got nothing to deliver in the end. These false teachers are just waterless clouds, he says. The promised clouds come, the sky darkens for a moment, and it seems like, and then there's no rain. And the fruitless trees, you go to them in the time of harvest, in the late fall, and there's nothing hanging there. And in fact, you look closely, then the tree's not even planted in the ground. It's twice dead. It seems so, but wasn't. There's nothing there but foaming, frothy shame. It's a stormy sea. And the stars that are in heaven, he's using all these different aspects of nature to, to, in very colorful ways. So you look at the stars in heaven, you look at the Big Dipper, and there are the stars fixed by the design of God for eternity. And then you watch one of the stars drift off. And you say, wait a minute, that's not right. Right. That's not right. That's Jude's point. New and improved faith is neither new nor improved. There's nothing there. It's different, but in a bad way. And it cannot bring you the heart refreshing that you're longing for. The life of merciful, gracious, shalom, rest. The life of love. That fruit doesn't grow on this new tree. You long for it, you're made for it, you're supposed to feast off it, but it doesn't grow there. That only comes from the life lived, faithfully following Jesus, the lover of your soul. And you're constantly being tempted to turn from him. We are constantly being tempted to turn from him. I'm not talking about the world. This is about us constantly tempted to turn from him. Not ultimately by false teachers, yeah, but ultimately by the false one himself. Who's coming for you? Has been since day one coming for you. The false one is not content to say, okay, Lord, you have those people, I'll take these people. Okay, God, you've got your people, I'll take the rest of them. Nope, I'll take these and them. And he's coming for you. Always offering a better life and never able to deliver it. And the only defense, ultimately, against his tempting offers 
is to live a life that's actually soaking in the identity that is yours in Christ, verses one and two. This is why it's a little bit of an unfortunate thing that we've got six weeks here between one and two and 11 through 16, because it should have been about three or four minutes as you read it through, you hear it read to you. The, the ultimate defense against, against this kind of a false offer is to say, I'm, I'm good. When, when are you tempted? You are always, in, in everything, you are tempted, or if you don't want to use the word tempted, you are, you are you know, maybe appealed to by an ad, when, when what you have already is a little bit lacking. Maybe you do need to do an improved model, but this one's got some problems. But if the one you have is awesome, you're not in the market. You're not buying the only defense against this, ultimately, the only thing that keeps you looking to the new clouds for water is if you're already soaked with the living water. The only thing that keeps you away from searching other trees for fruit is if you're already full, feasting on what the Lord offers. If you're a well-watered garden full already, that's the antidote to this temptation. So maybe, maybe you need to listen again to verses 1 and 2 or reflect back on that of who you are in Christ. I, I can't preach that whole sermon again right now. This would be too long. But that's why he starts there, to answer this temptation. Jude's emphasis here now, though, in this place is on warning. Don't listen to them they're wrong. How do you know that? Well, he does a little more than just say that, just, than just tell us they're wrong. There's another angle that Jude takes here, which is the same angle that Jesus takes in Matthew 12, in the context of condemning the Pharisees, false guides. Jesus said there that a tree is known by its fruit. So do you see what Jude does with that truth here? All throughout, as he's attacking the false teaching and the false teachers, he's also repeatedly pointing out the character of the false teachers. Look what kind of fruit grows on this tree, guys. Look what kind of fruit gets produced by what they're offering. And what he shows is not anything that anybody in the church would be inclined to say, I want more of that, that's good, sure. Notice especially, beginning, middle, and end of our passage, these guys are about serving themselves. Like Balaam, for the sake of gain. Because there's money in it. That's verse 11. Verse 12, without fear, they are looking after themselves. Literally, the language there is, they fearlessly shepherd themselves. Using language that echoes the Old Testament condemnation of the false shepherds of Israel, who didn't feed the sheep, but ate the sheep. These guys do this fearlessly, not fearing God's judgment. And then verse 16, they show favoritism to gain advantage. They are teaching. They are ministering some message in some way or another, but they're in it for themselves. Look closely and you'll see that. They'll tell you what kind of tree they are. They're greedy and they're self-focused. And they're verse 16. 
They are grumblers and malcontents, aren't they? He says, look at these guys. You know them. They're in your midst. They're grumblers and malcontents. Again, major words in the Old Testament that are, that are bad words. Major words of judgment. And they aren't about holiness, but they follow their own sinful passions. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus is not remotely what these guys are about. They're all about themselves. And, and maybe as, as you move on from Jude on down through church history, you, you can't say that every single false teacher, every place always is all of these things. He's just using some categories that probably fit the particular people there. And he's making the same point that Jesus did. Judge a tree by its fruit. Look. They, there's some fruit hanging there, or apparently hanging there, that seems appealing, that is attractive to you, that, that's kind of got a little bit of draw into you. Well, look at the other fruit. Self-serving, greedy, grumbling, boastful, arrogant, not holy. That tree produced that fruit. Don't buy it. Don't touch it. Don't go anywhere near it. This is tricky because, of course, false teachers understand this and do a really good job at hiding. But if it never worked, Jesus wouldn't have said it works. So it works. Watch the fruit. Watch what somebody's life becomes. Is it holy and godly? Is it humble? Or is it ungodly and worldly? self-serving and proud. That'll tell you what the tree's like. It'll warn you off of the fruit. The new faith promises a lot, but it can't deliver anything good and in fact delivers a lot that's bad. Buyer beware. Stay away. That's the first warning in this passage. But there's something else that is probably even a little heavier still. It's one thing to point out that the new and improved faith, the particular one these guys were offering, or anything that deviates from the faith once delivered to us, it's, a one, it's one thing to point out that that doesn't deliver anything good. It's another thing to point out that what it does deliver in the ultimate sense. So here's the second observation. Deviation from the faith brings destruction. Deviation from the faith brings destruction. Jude started talking about this in verse 4, and he hasn't stopped. Our verse 11 begins, as we saw, woe to them. Woe is a form of pronouncing judgment, not like a judge himself would, but like a prophet would when talking about what the judge will do. Woe will be to you. Sorrow and devastation will be to them. And it's emphasized again when he mentions the Korah thing. If you notice those three Old Testament illustrations, he rearranged the order chronologically so as to end with Korah. Korah didn't actually happen last, but he wants to end with that one because that one was a sit up straight and notice something Moses says, in fact, in that account, if these guys die a normal death, then God's on it. But if something unusual happens, be warned. And then the ground opened up and swallowed them, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and incinerated 250 guys. 
that's not normal. They perished. But 13, 14, and 15 in our passage, Jude, 13, 14, and 15 are especially blunt. These false teachers are wandering stars headed for the utter darkness, gloom, for forever. Like Enoch prophesied. And here again, like we mentioned before, Jude's going to not just allude to, but in fact quote a guy, Enoch, who's not in the Bible. And has, this has never been in any version of the Bible ever. What I mean is that at one point, the, the canon of the scripture was set. But before that, if you go back in the centuries, obviously the New Testament was not written, and obviously the older prophets were not written, and then obviously you go back and things weren't written, as, these, as the scripture was, was added to, as it was built and constructed and the Bible was put together, at no point ever was Enoch in that. Was this quote in that? No point ever. Which is fine. Some people kind of read this and say like, so there was no point ever in the Bible. Should we be quoting that? Sure. You can quote other stuff in the Bible. Like, you can quote Enoch. And, and also, in fact, there were, we know, there were lots of other prophets, like real prophets from God at work in the Old Testament. We, some of them are written about, including Enoch, is written about in the Bible. And if they were real prophets from God, what they said was true. They were not false prophets. So Jude, under the inspiration of God, is quoting something that a prophet said from God. What's profitable for us? We just look at it and we say, what's here? Why did God have Jude quote this? And if you look at it, it's not hard to understand. He does, probably pulling this rather than any other number of other biblical references that he could use that essentially say the same thing, but he uses this quote from Enoch because of how it drives home what happens to the ungodly? The same word he used back in verse 4 is here again and again and again and again, this Enoch quote. These false teachers behave in a worldly, ungodly way with disregard for God. And what is coming to the ungodly? Enoch tells us very clearly. The Lord comes with the host of heaven. Pause there. Check the little thing in you that just said, this is theology. Jude, Enoch, writes it in the Lord came with. He wants it to be like reality, like this is, I see this so clearly, it's as if it's already happened. It's prophetically certain. It hasn't happened yet, but it's certain. So check the little thing in you that said, I'm going to my theology category here, and actually realize this is history. It just hasn't happened yet. 
This isn't stuff we teach. This is things that happen. The sky opens and the Lord descends with a loud trumpet and the host of heaven right behind him. And what is he coming to do? To execute judgment on all. Every single one of us will stand trial before this one coming on the clouds. And the ungodly will be convicted. The ungodly will be convicted at that trial, condemned. This is the end that is certain, their certain future destiny. And Jude, in his kindness, God in his kindness through Jude, wants you to know that, wants you to see it, to read the fine print. Not only do these people not have anything good to offer you, they have devastation to offer you. Snuck in there in the third paragraph, the the fine print clause, and by the way, you will perish. Come with me. No, 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 no. See this. It's a certain coming destiny. It is terrible, but it is true. And of course the false teachers don't tell you that. And the world all around that agrees with them doesn't tell you that. And in fact, there are many, 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 many voices, most voices probably in the world that say, that is ridiculous. There's the preacher going off again with all that fire and brimstone nonsense. Okay. All I can say is, let me do the best I can to get out of the way. You take that up with the Lord. And if you, if, if you like those odds, go for it. I don't make any of this happen. I'm just a 50-year-old guy. And he'll come and judge me too. And I'm just telling you, it says right there, the ungodly will be convicted. I don't want to be ungodly. Is it narrow? Yup. The question is, is it true? People in history saw the ground open up and saw Korah swallowed and saw fire come out from the presence of the Lord and consume 250 men. Is it true? They knew it was. They took the metal from the censers that these 250 guys were offering. They took the metal and pounded it out and put it around the, essentially a religious device that they were worshiping with so as to be a visual reminder of that happened. There's the metal that was melted down by the fire because they knew people would say, Ridiculous. Nope, that's the metal right there. It happened. That is so unlike a God of love, though, is it? How many loving parents, when Junior walks up with the handgun, what's this, Dad? This looks kind of cool. It is pretty cool, son. Listen, this cool sound, too. Here, go have fun. What loving parent does that? Well, he wanted to have fun. He thought it was cool. 
Love says, I know better than you what the boundaries are. Here they are, and I will not let you cross them in love. He is the God of love. He is the God of truth. He is the God of righteousness. And he knows what evil is when he sees it. And he lovingly corrects and confronts and, and hems us in and tells us what would be transgression and forbids us from crossing it and enforces what's good. That's how the God of love shows his love for us. They're trying to sell you something, but it leads to destruction. Don't go that way. Don't follow them. Don't, verse 4, change the grace of God into a license, a permission slip for any kind of sin, sensual or otherwise. Don't set aside the authority of the Lord Jesus and say, I know better. There are some around you. There is one around you whispering in your ear, constantly trying to say, it will not go badly if you eat the fruit off this tree. Come. The tree doesn't have any fruit, guys, and it will kill you. Don't join them. They literally, verse 13, are stars wandering for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Literally, that is kept. And right there, I want to draw a line from the end of verse 13 back to the end of verse 1 to give us something sweet to reflect on as we close, what is admittedly a hard sermon. The, the whole point's heavy, right? I mean, it all is. Condemnation, destruction, and darkness, not pleasant. And Jude's point really in the midst of all this is don't go there. It's a valid point, but there's something about us, people, human beings, we often work in such a way that our ears are just a little more open to a positive message. Positive messages that are filled with hope, they just hit us in a different way. Our ears ring with a little bit of a different tone. Get this. Because God made us that way, that's not wrong. Because God made us that way. We perk up at the positive. We, we do need to hear the negative. If there's correction, we need to hear that. But, but God made us this way to perk up at the positive. God is not negative. Contrary to what you may have heard, God is not a negative God, a sour and somber and angry God who is always full of N-O-No. No. That's not the nature, that's not the core of God. He is a righteous God who will tell you the truth about sin and call you away from it in love. But he also knows that it is his kindness that leads you to turn away from sin and to reject its false offers. Kindness, grace, love of another sort. Not just the love of correction, the love of forbidding, but the love of forgiving and the love of blessing and the love of communing. He made us this way so that kindness leads us to him because he is the kind one. 
who says, that's what I actually want to put out there. I want to tell you where not to go, and I'm going to lay out there in spades my kindness. I'm going, to, I'm going to shower on them my goodness and say, come on over here. Here's the living water. Here's the fruit that feeds you. Come, 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 come. So, end of verse 13. Reserved, kept for utter darkness. Draw the line back to verse 1. Who are you? What are you? Kept for Jesus Christ. You faithful Christian, because of and standing in the old faith, the one once delivered to us, you are kept for Jesus Christ. You are his servant, called by him in eternity past. He claimed you. Mine. And so you be loved, you beloved one, with a wide and long and high and deep love. That's God's attitude towards you. And therefore, in love, He came to get you, sending His beloved Son to come and seek you out when you were wandering off and adrift and lost. He said, mine, I go and I claim you. I take you to myself. I call you then to myself and I keep you. And so then I deliver to you, read the fine print on this offer, verse two's mercy and peace and love multiplied. What he keeps you for is a life where messed up as you are, you find mercy. Troubled as you are, you find peace with other people, peace with him, and are headed to a life of shalom, utter peace. And where you find multiplied, 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 as you walk with him deeper and deeper and deeper, the loving God who cares for your soul. You listen to him and you obey him and you walk with him and what do you get? You get the God who is good. The God who made you for himself. The God who wants you. The God who is everything. This God keeps you for himself and this is what God has kept you for. This is what God offers in his son. A security with him. That's what Jesus came to provide for you when he himself was rejected, killed, and then rose again. So in the end, if I, if I put it out like this, you could notice that everybody is kept for one thing or another. Everybody's kept for verse 1 or verse 13. Which do you want? Hear the offers and read the fine print. Let me pray. Lord, in many ways I feel like, well, my mind turns back to one and two. It's, it needs your spirit to make it alive, to make it run. 
please do that. Please do that in the midst of your people right now. To make your care for us, your attentiveness to us, your love for us, your passion for us seem as real as it is and as sweet as it is, it sometimes feels distant. Help. Apart from you, we can do nothing, but with you, we can do all things. And so, pray, Lord, make us see that and make us to walk with you and run after you. Do good to your people. Draw them back, Lord. Keep them from temptation. Deliver them from the evil one. Thank you, Lord. We trust ourselves to you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.